Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots Show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. Well, I want to say good evening, everyone out there, or whenever you're listening to the show. It might be morning, afternoon, anytime. But this is Greg Rashid, the host of the Root and Root Show, and you're listening to us live if you're listening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Saturday. But if you're listening in on iTunes or especially on KUHS Denver Radio and Television, the originator of that great station, Henry Archuleta, if you're listening to that, you're listening to the show on Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m., if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, however you listen to the show, at your convenience. I hope you enjoy the show, and this is going to be really unique because they also, by the way, come on on Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time Live, and this is going to be an interesting show because my guest is calling from Germany. Last week we had a guest, of Paul Marco, who called from Ecuador, but he's been in the rotation, so he knows this, but this is a new person. He's a professor. In fact, we are very fortunate because I believe we have him on the line, and we're not even going to do any music. We're just going to get to him. And I want to make sure we have on the line Professor Manfred Berg. Are you there? I am here. Oh, I am so honored. And I want to tell my listeners, he's calling at midnight, so I'm not going to keep him on long, like all night, like I do some of the guests. But I'm just happy to have Professor Berg Manfred on here this evening because he has an excellent book. It's not now, if you're squeamish listeners, I suggest that you not listen to the show because we're going to get kind of graphic with some of the things that uh, Professor Berg has wrote about in the book. And the book is Popular Justice, A History of Lynching in America. And I've been looking forward to talking to you since I, I got this book like in the early spring. And finally, we're able to connect. I'm so happy to have you on here this evening. And I just want to ask Great you. Great to be um, on your show. Oh, just thank you so much. And I just want to ask you, first of all, why did you decide to write a book on lynching? There are a lot of books on lynching that are out there, but this one is different to me at least because it's very concise. It's not really long, but you cover the whole ground of the history of lynching in America. And just talk about why you decided to do this particular book, and at this time also. I think uh, that was exactly the reason I wrote it, because when I decided to write it, there was no book on the market that gave a concise history for the general reader from basically the colonial era to uh, the present. And I wanted to write a book that um, would cover all that ground and be also accessible to general readers, students, just simply everyone interested in the topic. Well, you've done a superb job with this book. Thank you. As I tell my listeners, you can call in at 424-675-8315, 424-675-8315 to talk to Professor Berg. Can I call you Manfred? Sure. Is that all right? All right, man. Talk to Manfred Berg about this book. Uh, popular justice, history of lynching in America. Well, first of all, I have so many questions to ask you about the book and just things, but talk about how, you know, in the colonial period, because that's where you really start the whole roots of lynching, how it started, the whole thing of tar and feathering people and 
this public display of this humiliation and how it grew into actual lynching that we know in the 21st century? Um, well, I think a major role played the mob violence during the American Revolution, when mob violence became uh, kind of a standard way to protest uh, British rule. That is one of the sources. Another source is uh, the situation on the uh, colonial frontier, where um, the public... Um, administration of justice was very weak and broke down and the people thought they had no other choice than um, taking the law into their own hand. And, however, I think what is important about keeping in mind about the, about the, uh, the, the colonial era is that uh, what we do not see are the gruesome spectacle lynchings that become commonplace in the late 19th and early 20th century. Actually, the term lynching, in, it, it originates during the American Revolution. It becomes, uh, it enters the American vocabulary in the early 19th century, and it does not really mean that the victims are being killed, necessarily. In fact, the uh, Colonel Charles Lynch, who was arguably the namesake for uh, the practice, when he held his tribunals against alleged Tories and traitors during the American Revolution, um, the, um, they, they actually tried to uh, at least preserve kind of a modicum of uh, due process, something that we will simply not see later on. Right. Right, and that, you know, what what would possess, well, first of all, the whole mom rule thing and the whole thing of just humiliation during the colonial period gave away to this other form, which is, as we know about, based on the issue of slavery and having Africans brought over here and being punished by lynching. And talk about why, some of it's obvious, obviously, but in the book you really get into why this was a tool to well, keep Africans in you know in line more or less to put that in parentheses uh well, slavery, I think was one is certainly one of the root causes of lynching in the sense that it established the idea in people's in white Americans' minds that Africans had no were somewhat less than human that they uh, could be subjected to particularly cruel punishment that also all whites basically had uh, the right and the duty to control them. Also, I think what played an important role was the authority of the slaveholder to punish slaves at will. So they were, in a sense, removed from um, the public uh, criminal uh, justice system. Uh, however, the lynching in the form that you mentioned and that we usually associate with the term today uh, is something, this type of, uh, of racial lynching becomes um, extremely uh, widespread in the years after the Civil War and particularly in the late 19th century. And it had a lot to do with, uh, number one, with the desire of... Uh, particularly the southern white population to 
control the liberated around about four million uh, former slaves, uh, which they saw as a threat uh, to their status and, and their economic interest in many ways. Also, uh, obviously, the uh, southern ruling elites had a had an, an economic interest in maintaining a pliable labor force. Uh, another aspect, I think, was, and I think most historians uh, would agree, uh, that lynching also ensured and constructed in many ways white solidarity across class uh, divisions at a time when American society and Southern partic- uh, society in particular was undergoing uh, enormous transformations. Right. You know, and that's, you know, I want to skip around a little bit. I want to get to one particular lynching that I want you to talk about. The lynching of Henry Smith in uh, Texas, in Paris, Texas, in about 1893. Because yeah. uh, that is really in detail. And just describe to my listeners, and listeners, you can call in at 424-675-8315. I'm talking to Manfred Berg, the author of the book, Popular Justice, The History of Lynching in America. And he's calling from Germany. So, you know, have some respect and please, you know, call in if you want to talk to him about the issue. So talk about that that particular lynching. What came up? Why did that one come about? And what happened afterwards? Because it's really, you know, it's just, all, all these stories are sad, but that one just—that's one of the many that really yeah. got to me. It's a—it's a—it's a mind-boggling story. Uh, it happened in 1892 in uh, Paris, Texas, when a young African-American uh, man by the name of Henry uh, Smith had supposedly killed a. Uh, the, the young daughter of the local sheriff in uh, Paris, Texas, and uh, a posse hunted him down. They uh, caught him near the Arkansas border, actually, I think, in Arkansas, and then uh, brought him back on the train. And it was kind of a – everyone knew that there would be an, a, a lynching in uh, Paris, Texas, there were huge crowds, allegedly. There were 10,000 onlookers. Actually, a lot of people from the vicinity of uh, Paris actually boarded the train on which the posse brought back uh, the unfortunate Henry Smith. And when he came to Texas, uh, to Paris, Texas, uh, um, a scaffold had already been erected with uh, somewhat... Uh, facetiously, one might almost say, having the words justice painted on the scaffold, and then Henry Smith yeah. was uh, tortured to death. I really spare your uh, listeners the gruesome uh, details. He was cut into pieces. People, onlookers afterwards, would uh, scavenge for his body parts as uh, souvenirs. And, of course, uh, no if one that, was if ever... If I could, if I could put you... Uh... I want you to stop right there because that's uh, not because of what you're saying, but I want to talk to you more about that because you say it in the book. But And this is something I've known for a long time, but you really get into this because I, I remember stories from the 70s when I was in college in the 80s where 
there would be these stories where people would go into the homes, especially in the south, of seniors who had died who were in their 80s and 90s, and they would find many times a foot or a toe or, you know, a finger in a drawer somewhere, and they found out that was actually an African-American body part. And I want you to talk about why that was done. And one thing you mentioned in there is that the whole thing about people wanting to buy these parts. It is it is indeed unbelievable from our uh, perspective. It is so uh, gory and and gruesome that we can hardly stomach it. But apparently at the time, uh, well, it was seen, I would almost call it a trophy. Um, it was um, lynching, particularly these spectacle lynchings, um, as it happened in Paris, Texas, and in other places, uh, served the function of being sort of public rituals um, that um, strengthened the cohesion of the white community in a way uh, by uh, by looking at these gruesome scenes by participating in it at least symbolically and by scavenging these body parts uh, people became um, in a way asserted their membership in the quote unquote moral community that had meted out the justice uh, they saw fit. I think it is very important to point out that very few lynchers had any moral qualms about what they uh, were doing. There was no such thing as regret or remorse. They and that's the thing that, yeah, and I want to ask you about that because you say it in a sentence like these are like upstanding citizens of the community, churchgoers, you know, business folk, you know, the country store owners, just average school teachers who would be considered ordinarily the friendliest people you can meet, but in this instance, they forget all of that. And they can, you know, and you don't explain this. And I was wondering if you've ever thought about what would possess a person who's this very faithful person in one minute, slice off another human being's parts and lynch him and all, and then the next day go to church and pray about forgiveness and all and have no problem with that. Uh, I think people act very differently when they act as individuals uh, and when they act in crowds. And when they act in crowds where they feel they are part of a a larger force that um, does the right thing, um, that relieves them of moral doubt and of any moral doubt that they uh, might have. Um, another thing is, I think uh, American lynchers historically are not exceptional. I think we we would be mistaken if we assumed that uh, the terrible things that happen in uh, history um, that they are perpetrated by perverts and uh, somewhat distorted people uh, for the most part. For the most part, it's actually ordinary men, and in the case of lynching, it's usually men who perpetrate these type of uh, things, although women do play a role. Uh, But nevertheless, um, when, for example, you look at... uh, uh, 
at the uh, members of Nazi execution squads. These were, in a way, ordinary people. And uh, to some extent, they believed in it, just like um, American lynchers in the age of Jim Crow believed that right. uh, they had to protect uh, the white race from the quote-unquote black beast. So ideology, that is to say racism, played a key role, I would argue. But it also had a lot to do with the fact that uh, as an individual, you would never be held accountable. You could expect to work, uh, uh, you could expect to, to act with impunity. That is another aspect. You know, and it's the, it's just the idea, you know, and looking at the pictures, not only in your book, but seeing pictures of folks gathered after lynching, you know, white folks, and they're just smiling, just, you know, just yeah. happy and gleeful. They believed, they, they, did, they, they seriously believed they did the right thing. It was a spectacle also, I think. Um, some historians, and I think with good reasons, have argued that lynchings as spectacles were kind of a mass entertainment. And there is a famous line by a, a contemporary journalist from Baltimore, Henry Louis Mencken, who once uh, said that this, what the South really needed was better entertainment, so uh, they would not have to. It was, of course, very acerbic and very ironical the way right. he expressed it. Uh, but he said, well, uh, this is such a culturally deserted place. They just need better entertainment, give them theaters and circuses and whatever so they don't have to lynch. Well, <laughs> well it was more than that, obviously. Obviously, but I think it, there's part of it, part of it certainly um, um, there's uh, more than just a kernel of truth in it. I think it is... Um, Indeed, the spectacle lynchings, as you mentioned, if you look at these people, it was, uh, in a way, it was entertainment, in the way that public executions were uh, entertainment. In, a, I make a, uh, in, the, in my book, I make a very strong argument that uh, lynching and uh, the death penalty I was going to get to that, Greg, you said that. Yes, and talk about that some more. That whole common history of the death penalty, because it, yeah, that's a very important point you brought up in the book. Uh, well, my, um, you know, when we go back to the colonial era, what we see is that the death penalty is kind of a communal ritual that is carried out by, um, you know, the villagers um, or the people of a of a county. It's held publicly. You have sermons. You have kind of a sort of a restoration, it is often seen as the restoration of a moral order that had been violated by uh, the condemned. Now, uh, with the rise of the modern criminal justice system, the state, uh, in a way, uh, claims a monopoly of punishing, um, of punishing criminals, and in, as I and other historians argue, lynching can also be interpreted as a rebellion uh, against this claim to monopoly of legitimate violence and punishment on the part of uh, of the state, and I think that is a is a feature that is very uh, pronounced.
pronounced in American culture, the distrust of government. So um, that is one part, I think. The other part that I think is very important to mention is that lynching declines from the 1890s onward, and it does so for two reasons. One reason is that, and we do not really know why that happens, but that from around 1915, 1920 onward, um, the local police, the local sheriffs who had often who would often collude with the mob, they become more inclined to defend their prisoners, to uh, haul them away for safekeeping. And so um, sort of the police becomes more active in fighting mob action. The other part of the story, and I think a very important part of the story, is that what we see is a rise in, uh, in executions, particularly of African Americans, particularly of African Americans being... Um, uh, being condemned and executed for alleged uh, rape. Uh, so in a way... And, also, and, and could I add a third component? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. yeah in a a way, third component... At least for some time it becomes the substitute for lynching. This is what what I argue. And, and, and I've, found, I've found almost unbelievable evidence of really uh, mock trials, of trials that were... Uh, you know, uh, a travesty of justice, you might uh, call it, when it was perfectly clear, when the mob was already in the courtroom, when defendants would be executed right after the jury had brought out the guilty verdict. Uh, all of this had nothing to do with even a modicum of due process, but allegedly those were official um, executions that did not right. count as lynchings. Right. A third component, which actually you say in the book, in a sense, is um, folks like Ida B. Wells, the NAACP at that time, putting pressure on the government by releasing, especially Ida B. Wells, releasing these papers, documents, books about lynching that no one else was even dealing with at the time. And I just feel that did a lot to just kind of stop things for a while. Well, it certainly played. It, it, I, I agree that it certainly played a role, and we really have to acknowledge the courage and the resilience of um, Ida B. Wells and other people, and the NAACP, uh, in particular, uh, in fighting uh, lynch law. But what we have to keep in mind is that they really had to fight an uphill. Uh, battle for a number of reasons. American, many Americans believed that, and and that was true in the North as well as in the South. Many white Americans believed in the rape myth. Even people such as, say, President Theodore Roosevelt, they would publicly condemn lynching, but they would at the same time say, but but lynching is. You know, the reason why lynchings happen is that there is there's so many rapes by uh, of white women by black men, and uh, the black the blacks have to stop it uh, themselves. So there is this assumption, and Ida B. Wells is one of the most courageous acts that she 
actually comes out with uh, in the 1890s is to say, wait a minute, all of this is a myth and it often covers up consensual relationships. She herself has to leave the South after this because she would have certainly had, uh, face, uh, had to face a, oh, yeah, they were uh, after her. a lynch mob. Um, oh, so yeah. Uh, it was a, a tough uphill battle. It was also that the federal government, for many years, including the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, including majorities in Congress, including uh, the White House, would argue, well, you know, criminal justice is, is, is state law. This is a prerogative of the state. We can't do anything about it. And although several states passed so-called anti-lynching laws, it was... Uh, for a fairly long time, they didn't do anything about it. So it was a tough uphill. Uh, it was a tough uphill battle, uh, and I think it it had some. Uh, it gained traction, particularly in the 1930s, uh, with the New Deal, and when more broad-based interracial coalitions became uh, possible. But we should keep in mind that uh, the Southern white um, congressmen and um, senators, in particular, retained the veto power in the Senate and uh, for a long, long time. Yes, they did. And there's one other thing that you don't bring up in the book, but I had an author, another professor, on a number of years ago. Her name is Carenza uh, Mitchell, and she's based at the Ohio State University. She wrote a book called. And she's African American, African American woman. She wrote a book called Living with Lynching. And she talks about how there were many African Americans, playwrights at the turn of the twentieth century, that would write plays about lynching where it showed that there was a component of the African American community at that time who were opposed to lynching, but on the other hand, it's like what you were saying earlier about rape. Now, some people say, well, these folks deserve to be lynched because they're supposedly rapists. Her thing was that she found out there were some folks that were African-Americans that were opposed to lynching, but there were some who felt, well, we do have some evil people among us, and they may have deserved that. Um, Well, that is interesting. This is actually the assumption with which Ida B. Wells herself when she right. writes in the red record and everything, she writes about her own experience. And then she finds out, then what happens is that three of her friends are lynched in Memphis, Tennessee in the early 1890s. And these friends of hers, the successful black businessmen, and they get lynched because their white competitors stir up a mob against them. And then Wells comes to see through the idea that through the whole uh, mythology and the hysteria about uh, rape and about this obsession with black and white sexuality that really is, as one historian once aptly called it, the folk pornography of the Bible Belt uh, in these these years. Uh, So um, it is quite reasonable to assume that these ideas were also rooted within the black community. There's also an aspect, 
I briefly mention it in my book, there are also lynchings in the South when black communities lynch black criminals, in part right. because they, in part because they argue that they can get no uh, uh, no justice from uh, the white criminal justice system that simply doesn't care about black on black crime. So they say, and this is the classical argument of lynch law, is we have to take the law into our own hand because it's inefficient, it is weak, it doesn't really uh, lead out the type of punishment that we see fit. Um, so I would agree that uh, on the one hand that African Americans hold some of these uh, views themselves, but on the other hand, for I would I would assume that uh, blacks living in the Jim Crow South, uh, they also had to put on a mask. They uh, couldn't really take issue with sort of the dominant white discourse, and, and they knew quite well that right. every, particularly African American man who stepped out of line or became peril came perilously close to being suspected of having approached a white woman was uh, in outright danger. And, yes, and it still goes on. I want to get to the current issue as far as the other forms of lynching, but I want to ask you about something in your book that I had never, I had never really had seen in writing before, but you talk about the whole aspect of Mexican-Americans being a lynch, and that's something no one talks about. And talk about talk about that. Well, uh, to be fair, I have to give credit to uh, several colleagues, Professor Webb in England and Professor Kerrigan at Rowan University, who have whose work I'm using and with whom I have collaborated. And they've written really a great book about the lynching of Mexicans, and they have found out that on a per capita basis, uh, Mexicans in uh, the Southwest after um, the annexation of what was before Mexican territory uh, had as high a risk of being, uh, being lynched as African Americans in the South. And what we see here is, on the one hand, a, um, their racial issues, of course, although they're in, in many ways different from uh, the, uh, from the uh, from the south, uh, but it also has to do with the uh, with the desire of Anglo Americans to consolidate their rule in a territory that had belonged to the Mexicans, and uh, so in a way it's comparable to um, um, to what happens in the south after Reconstruction. Uh, it's an it's an it's an extreme instrument of social control. The Mexicans, of course, fight back. Uh, they can go across the border, uh, and there's a lot of guerrilla fighting going on, and, and and with atrocities on both sides. Right, and that's you know I have to get a hold of the, the books that you were mentioning because I really like to get into that issue more, because a lot, a lot of the folks that listen to this show are based in the Southwest, in particular Colorado, where I've lived for the past 20 years, and they will be fascinated to know that. You know, it's a sure. part of history that is not really taught 
in the schools out there, I can say in Colorado, in New Mexico, where a lot of these lynchings happened in New Mexico, and it would be fascinating, you know, just to get those professors on also eventually and talk about that because it's really a forgotten, just a forgotten subject. It is, you know, it's mainly black and white in this country as far as the issue of lynching, but there is this other segment with the Mexican-American community that's completely forgotten and ignored. So I'm just thankful that you brought it up and the other folks that you mentioned have brought that up too. Yeah, they, they've actually now, entitled that book The Forgotten Dead, and I think that's an, an apt uh, title. The Forgotten Dead. I will work yeah. on getting those folks on here because that's a very important component. Now let's fast forward now to today. Because you mentioned, and it comes, it keeps coming across in the book about taking the law in your own hand. Now, you don't mention in this book, because I guess this book was published before the old issue of uh, Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman. Oh, yeah, happened. yeah, yeah. But I want um, you to talk about that. Go ahead. I think, yeah, I, I, it was published in 2011, so uh, it, uh, before the Trayvon uh, Martin uh, killing. But I mention another case uh, at the end of the book that happened in 2006 in Pasadena, Texas, that oh, yeah. uh, uh, that um, um, aroused a lot of in- uh, attention, uh, also internationally. And the point that I'm trying to make is, uh, although uh, these incidents were not classical lynchings, they nevertheless... Um, are in a certain or should be seen in a certain tradition here because uh, what they epitomize and mirror is a widespread belief in American culture that that individuals or groups have the right to take the law into their own hands uh, if they see fit. And uh, this kind of sort of this vigilante tradition, as it has rightly been called, is something that is, in fact, very unique to the United States, at least among uh, the major industrialized nations. And I think President Obama very recently pointed this out after the shootings uh, in Oregon. It has to do with the easy, almost unlimited access uh, to firearms, it has to do with the so-called stand-your-ground laws uh, that um, tolerate a very extensive notion of legitimate self-defense. Uh, and I know how difficult. I've lived for a long time in the United States. I'm a frequent visitor. I know what a contentious issue that is and how difficult it is to speak with people who are just infatuated with the idea that uh, an an upright citizen has to own a gun and should use it whenever he or his family is attacked. But my point is the United States has a murder rate or a homicide rate that is between five and ten times higher than in Europe, and I think there there must be reasons for that. Yeah, definitely so. And, you know, as you were saying earlier, and I could go on with you all. Now, I'm just, uh, first of all, uh, Matthew, I'm just grateful. I mean, Manfred, I'm so grateful that you spent all this time because I thought we were going to do it maybe 10 minutes. And I'm just <laughs> so grateful you, you've you done this. But I'm going to be pleasure. 
conclu- concluding this because the book I don't want to give away a lot in this book. I just this book first off should be in all history classes in this country and universities and high schools because it's very you know it's just a part of the history. And as you say in the book, how there are so many people who don't want to. It doesn't matter what race they don't they want to forget that that ever that these lynchings ever happened. Meanwhile, you have issues like, yeah, go ahead, as you were about to say. Yeah, that that is true. And, I mean, I come from a country where, uh, and I've grown up in a country where people wanted to forget about terrible history, too. But it comes back to haunt you. It comes back to haunt you at uh, some point. And as I mentioned at the end of my book, there have been um, attempts, particularly the a very valuable exhibition by Mr. Allen on Without Sanctuary um, that alerted uh, and created a broader consciousness. But it is interesting that if you look at, even if you look at the historians, after lynching ceased as a public spectacle in the mid-20th century, there were no books on lynching for virtually three decades. That's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Now, since um, for for the past 15, 20 years, we have a, almost a cottage industry uh, in the field, so there is a growing awareness, and I hope that my uh, little book has made a small contribution to raising that awareness. Uh, but I think it's still a painful and difficult topic, and a lot of people would prefer to forget about it. But then again, as you were saying, too, they want to forget about it, but... The things you mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, and you say in the book about how, in particular, African Americans have been perceived as these overly sexed, threatening animals, it comes back in the 21st century with the, and I have to go back to Trayvon Martin, I have to go back to a, a number of the police uh, killings that have happened in the past year and a half in this country where the descriptions of the Victims, those that died, was as someone that was almost like a beast. That Trayvon Martin was portrayed as someone who was bigger than he was, this brute, this strong individual. You know, this individual. You know, the, the the young man that died, Michael Brown, that died in Ferguson. The same thing. He was portrayed as this giant. And you see that. You know, when you look at the history of lynching, and you see how. The folks who were lynched, how they were described as these brutes, as these huge animals, as these, you know, something that has to be getting rid, gotten rid of. So, unfortunately... Yeah, there, is a continuity in, uh-huh. there is a continuity in images and stereotypes that is still very powerful and that needs to be uh, addressed. Uh, right. I think uh, that is, uh, it's more than obvious. There is the notion that somehow young black men are innately dangerous and that they need to be controlled and that uh, the police should have uh, very broad uh, discretion uh, in dealing with them. Uh, And there is, um, I mean, that again, I should perhaps be interesting for your uh, readers, uh, excuse me, for the listeners to learn that um, there are perhaps around about 650 people killed every year by police in the United States in a country such as Germany, which has 
80 million uh, residents, um, the number is, has never been higher than 5 to 10 in, in any year for the past 20 years. So uh, there's something wrong with the American police as well. They, yeah, I mean, uh, they, I, I, I appreciate that they're often in danger, that uh, America is the, the best armed civilian population in the world. There's no question about it. So, uh, uh, But nevertheless, um, um, there is a, a certain uh, problem there that I think ought to be addressed. It certainly is. And Manfred, um, we could go on with this, but I just want to thank you for the time. And if anyone wants to get a hold of you, do you have a website? Uh, yes, I do. I do. Uh, I usually just need to Google my name, Manfred Berg Heidelberg, and then I teach at Heidelberg University in, in Germany, and then you will find my – it's also an English version of the website, and you can just write me an email, and I'll be happy to respond. And I'm just happy to have you on here this evening. And last week we had someone from uh, Ecuador, so we're getting in. Well, this show is becoming international now. And we have someone That's from it. Germany, and, that, and it's really great. I really appreciate that, and I hope that – are you going to continue with your next studies, next books on lynching, or are you going to do something completely different? Uh, I'm currently doing something completely different. I'm writing a biography of President Woodrow Wilson, so – uh, well, is, well I've, innocent, I've, but I've the lynching, yeah. Other, uh, the whole lynching comes about. Yeah, oh, yeah okay. well, oh, there's some part in it. I've I, I drawn my, on my research. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, that is something. Well, Manfred, I just want to thank you for coming on today. I look forward maybe sometime we'll, you know, one of us across the Atlantic and we can meet each other, but I really am grateful sure, for you sure, writing this sure. book and and grateful for you doing this interview today on it's what like one well, o'clock in the morning now. So it was great talking to you, and it's great being on your program. And I hope your listeners enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm sure they. What happens usually is people get back with me after these shows because a lot of them are downloaded for later on, and they just tell me that they want to get these books, they want to meet the authors, all of this. So it's you know it's really this is one of the better interviews I've had, honestly. Because it's a very thank important so subject. Thank you so much. Well, and thank you for the praise for for the book. Thank you. Bye bye. All right. You take care. And again, that was Professor Manfred Berg, the author of the book *Popular Justice: The History of Lynching in America*. It's on Roman and Littlefield Press in the U.S. Uh, and it's a short book. It's really short, but it's concise as far as it gets into the whole history of lynching in this country. And I hope, you know, I, I urge you to go get this book. If you want to learn history, it is graphic. It is very graphic in some instances, but we're talking about lynching. We're not talking about, you know, uh, baseball. We're talking about something that's really, you know, this is terrible. So I hope you enjoyed that interview, and I'm going to play it right now. Billie Holiday, Strange Fruit, because this is a song that she wrote talking about lynching back in the 40s on the Root and Root Show.
two songs by the great Thelonious Monk and his birthday is today on October 10th if you're listening live. And anyway, if you're not, any time's a great time to listen to Monk. So it doesn't matter if it's his birthday or not. And that one was In Step, In Walked Bud, talking about Bud Powell. And before that, we did a Less Cool One. And I hope you enjoyed Monk. I might do a whole show on Monk because, I mean, his stuff is just so... It's just amazing. It was out, you know, for some of you may think, wow, that's old music. It's not old. His jazz, any jazz, this is never old. It's just, you know, that's just great music there. That's classical music at its best. And I, I might do a whole show on Monk sometimes. I might try to reach out to one of the family members and just talk about him because he, cause he's just a, you know, just a fascinating, not jazz musician, just person and just history, you know, just a history of Monk is just is just something. So hopefully, you know, we will do a show one of these days on just his music alone. This amazing guy. But we're gonna get into changing for jazz. We're gonna do a little of R and B now because we're prepared for our next uh, segment because we're gonna be talking about champions and potential champions. And I want to make sure I have this on here because I. May not have put this on here. Then we'll have to go to something else because we got tons of music here on the Root Move Show. So we got tons of things here, and I'm just checking to see if it's on here or not. And I believe that we don't have that song that I was going to play now, which is fine because we got some other stuff on here that we can put on here as we wait for our next guest here on the Root and Root Show. And I think we're going to do right now. I feel so good about Monk. I'm going to play another Monk song. This is April in Paris, and this is Thelonious Monk, April in Paris.
Thessalonians Monks, a rendition of April in Paris. On the Root and Root Show, as we're going to wait for our next guest, I'm going to play a remix of a song I played the other day, and I've been playing it a number, you know, a number of times. But I'm going to play this remix of Janet Jackson's uh, "No Sleep," and we're going to do that right now. And it's, let's see here, we're having a little, little technical problem here. As I, you know, here it is, right here. Okay, so let's see, "No Sleep," the remix by Janet Jackson on the Root and Root Show. So late, so quick, no
really the idea is that if you're taking the most shot attempts in the game, that probably means that you have the puck the most, and the best teams tend to have the puck the most. And with the Chicago Blackhawks, over the last couple of years, they've been the best puck possession team in the NHL, and it should come as no surprise then that they have won three Stanley Cups in the last couple of years, too. And it all sort of ties in together that they also have the most talented top-end players like Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane and Duncan Keith, who are all considered superstars in the league. And, you know, it's kind of common sense in a way that the best players are able to control the puck the most and do the most with the puck, and therefore they end up scoring the most. It's not a perfect metric by any means. You can't just look at who's had some decent puck possession and predict what the standings are going to come out. But year after year when, you know, the Stanley Cup is handed out, uh, you'll often find that whoever is raising the cup had really good possession numbers. So then we look at those a lot when we're focusing on other teams. Our team's on the rise, our team's about to fall. And uh, you mentioned Colorado's a really interesting case that two years ago they made the playoffs and won their division, but they had bad possession numbers. And a lot of statistical analysts predicted that they would fall off the next season. I think I remember talking with you about it, about how most statistical analysts were saying, well, the Avalanche will probably fall off because they're a bad possession team. And that's exactly and what did. happened. And yep. And, and they ended up missing the playoffs. So it's, it's, it goes into the pot of many different numbers that you look to analyze players and teams, but it's become sort of the, the starting point. If you're not possessing the puck, it's very hard to maintain a really good play. It's interesting. I mean, when I was reading your commentary about the Avalanche, and listeners, you can join in and talk with Matthew and I about the NHL at 424-675-8315. On the one hand, it seemed like you were saying that it doesn't look like they're going to make the playoffs, but then again, they have a great chance to make the playoffs. I don't know if I'm misreading it, and that they are loaded with talent, that they just have to tweak this a little bit as far as their defense. Yeah, the uh, Avalanche are a really interesting case because of that, uh, because they have some high-end talent, some guys that were drafted at the very top of the draft, and Matt Duchesne, Gabriel Landeskog, and Nathan McKinnon, who are all considered superstars in the league, but they're all forwards. And their problem last year was there were so many defensive breakdowns that they couldn't get the puck to their dynamic forwards to go down to the other end of the ice and score and it became a a huge issue that they were pinned in their own zone for long periods of time and they basically had to rely on really good goaltending if they were going to win any games because goalies would have to bail them out now this year is i think colorado is the type of team that could see a big bounce back because they went out and signed a pretty good defenseman named Francois Beauchemin, and they also traded for a really young but talented defenseman in Nikita Zadorov from Buffalo, who was a first-round draft pick. They recognized that that was a huge problem last season, and they tried to address it. But at the same time, there are still question marks about whether they did enough to beef up their defense to be able to get that puck and, and go the other way. And if their goaltender can continue to bail them out, as he has in the last couple of years, because as, as as well as Simeon Varlamov, their goaltender, played last year, if he wasn't in, in goal for Colorado, they would have been one of the worst teams in the league awful. based on possession. Yeah, they really were. And he and he bailed them out plenty of times and had them – they weren't really in contention at any point, but sort of 
turned them around a little bit toward the uh, second half of the season. But this year, it'll be interesting to see uh, because they also let one of their – they traded one of their two-way forwards, the guy who could play both offense and defense in Ryan O'Reilly, but then signed a few more forwards like Carl Soderberg to go along with it. So they've made a lot of changes in the offseason, and I guess we'll see. I, they're a team that is, if you notice in the projections in our book, we project them as a bubble team. They could go either way. You could see them being really good, or you could yeah, see their what, possession once again catching up to them. Right, and that's why I was saying that, because it seemed like that. The, the, the way you were writing it, it seemed also like they could be this year's surprise like a Tampa Bay or New York or the Islanders. Yeah, you know, because they have that high-end talent, uh, it, it's they could surprise some people and be even better than we project them to be in the book because Nathan McKinnon last year, who was their number one overall pick two years ago, he didn't play very well last year. He was beat up. He was injured. He had to have shoulder surgery in, in the offseason after his rookie year where he won uh, the Rookie of the Year Calder Trophy, uh, and he just had a tough season, the, the old sophomore slump, you know. And this year, if he comes back 100% healthy, he is as talented of a scorer as anyone in the NHL. He's one of the fastest skaters in the league. And he could be a guy that could score 70, 80, 90 points even. And, you know, if he has that big bounce back season, uh, along with the other things that will have to go right for them, their goaltending will still have to be good. You can say that for any team, though. That, you know, you're going to have right. to get good goaltending if you're going to be good. But McKinnon is kind of the uh, the key factor to me. That You could see him, um, you know, jumping right back into being a star in the NHL, and that could get them a, a few more wins than they got last year. Another interesting thing, Greg, is the um, the three-on-three could really be something for Colorado. The, the, the overtime format changed this year to where they're playing only three-on-three three for the entire overtime. I'm looking forward uh, before to this they go. Yeah, it's, it's going to be exciting. I saw it in the minor leagues uh, last year, and it's crazy. And a team like Colorado that has several of the fastest skaters in the NHL, I mean, they could earn they could earn a bunch of points in the standings just by going to overtime. Yeah, they certainly could. And, you know, they, I didn't realize that Tyson Beret was such – I knew he was good, but – when I was reading your publication, I said, I didn't realize he had scored that many points, and that he's, he's one of guy, the top one of the top five yes, defensemen. Sir. I mean, per what he does in the league. Yeah, yeah, I think that that would surprise a lot of people. And you know, he's one of those players that uh, the numbers a couple of years ago pointed to him becoming one of the top defenders in the league. And it's more, I mean, the thing about it is with this team that there are a lot of great offensive players and he's an offensive minded defenseman. So he's going to put up points. He's great with the puck. He can skate really, really well and might be another guy that's great on three on three, but he's got his defensive deficiencies. You know, he has some shortcomings in his game still defensively, even though he's great at controlling the puck and, and great at setting up the other players that it's one of those things that you'll have to keep an eye on to see if he improves because if he can play a little bit better in his own zone, maybe add a little bit of grit to his game, a little bit of toughness, then he could be one of the, the best defensemen in the NHL. And that's another factor, too, that we'll be keeping an eye on because if he does take that next step, he's still pretty young. I, I mean, he's going to be a, a serious force back there, and that could help boost from where we even see Colorado finishing. Yeah, because I really just think um... – I think that you know. I think they're going to surprise a lot of folks out there. You, you folks listening in Colorado who listen to this on a delayed basis. 
Watch the Avalanche. I mean, they were losing, ten, you know, folks going to the games last year. But this is an exciting team. And the funny thing about them is that I also didn't realize that they had, they were one of the rare teams that had, what was it, a 650 goal scores, 650 point scores on their team. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, uh, you know, the, the thing that you mentioned about your fans, your listeners uh, in Colorado and going to the games is that I, I had a chance to see Colorado in person a few times last year. And <laughs> let me tell you, man, like even if they lose, it's fun because they're so up-tempo, okay. they're so fast, they have so much talent. They may give up goals, but it sort of feels like old-time hockey. I mean, it, you know, most hockey games now finish – three to one or something like that but every colorado game it seems like finishes six to five so if you're uh, an avalanche fan or maybe even i feel like those are the types of games where you don't have to be a huge hockey fan to just try it out and it ends up being fun and that's you know whether you're talking about are they a stanley cup competitor i don't know but i know that if you were asking me what teams i'd like to just go see on a nightly basis colorado would be toward the top of my list yeah, that's one of the reasons why, even though I, you know, I covered them for many years, I'm getting the NHL package just for them because I just enjoy, I just enjoy hockey. And I enjoy seeing the Avs, and you know, it, it's, and I'm glad you said the thing about old time hockey because they're one of the last teams, if I'm not mistaken, it still has an enforcer. Because a lot of yeah, teams are getting it, away from that. It's weird. It enforce. Right, enforcers are really going out of the game. And I think that in part that's because of uh, concussion lawsuits that have happened in the NFL that uh, the NHL is afraid of. And uh, they know that if they don't do everything they can to curtail fighting, and eventually I think fighting will just be completely out of the game. Um, so I, they're trying to, you know, cut back on how many fights there are in a game. So what you used to see, I mean, uh, you've, watch hockey for a really long time so you remember the days and and i do too when i was growing up of all right here they go like two two guys who that's what they they do every night they're sort of entertainers as much as they are uh hockey players they throw them down at center ice and then they go the two you know big heavyweights and uh you just don't see anything like that anymore usually there's a couple of guys will toss the mitts if they get into a little bit of a scrum or something like that but for the most part uh that's just gone from the game which you know to me is uh, as much as I loved those when I was growing up, now that I realize the long-lasting effects that can happen uh, with some of the guys that did that job, I'm kind of glad to see it go. Well, you know, and I have a guilty pleasure that I picked up many years ago on eBay. I can't say I'm ashamed of it, but about over 10 years ago, I picked up like two hours of Ty Dome fights. <laughs> And, if, and listen, if you don't know Ty Domi, I mean, look him up. I mean, he was one of the classic fighters. Yeah, he was. And, I and you he, know, I, 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 I grew up in the, the Buffalo area, and so Rob Ray oh was the guy oh. in Buffalo. <laughs> no, those two, yeah, yep, you know what I'm talking about. Those classic. two had epic fights. Yep, absolutely. Was it Rob, was Rob, there were three of them on their team at one point. It was Rob Ray. They had three of the, fight, of the top ten fighters on their team. Yep, they would have had Rob Ray, probably Brad May, and Matt Barnaby who might have been another one at that's that time. Right. That's yeah. Barnaby. That's yep. right. Yeah, that was a. They didn't win anything, but they, you know, they were they were fun to watch. <laughs> yeah, but I admit I, I have one of my guilty pleasures. I do have a Ty Dome, two hours of him just fighting, and it's um, well, you know, it's something. Go ahead. Well, I 
No, sorry. I, I think that there's a lot of people that are in your shoes, though, that, you know, you, you grew up watching the hockey fights and there was a part about it that you really loved. And, you know, still, if there's a fight that happens, sometimes there's an energy in the arena that, you know, just can't really be matched. But at the same time, you know, I, I think you don't need to feel bad that you used to love the fights, but also recognize, well, those really just don't belong in the game anymore. You know what I mean? That, that we've changed and yeah. adapted. It's the same thing with, with the NFL. You used to love to see a wide receiver go up to, to catch a pass and get laid out, but now when you see it, you go, oh, that's that's not good. That's not what you want to see, and that's why they've changed the rules. So, you know, I, right. I, I don't think it needs to be uh, something that you feel bad about. We just uh, didn't have the information at the time. And also, too, um, and I, I knew anyway. I already knew it was bad. That's that's why it was a guilty pleasure. But um, and you look at Olympic hockey during the Olympics, no fighting, none of that, pure mm-hmm. game, and it's beautiful. It's just a great game to watch. You know, so it's you know fighting doesn't have to be in the league anymore. It's uh, you know, it's in the past. Hopefully, it will be in the past in the next five years, maybe less than that. It'll just ban it completely. But let's talk about you know last year you were right on point. We were talking earlier about the uh, Tampa Bay team as far as, you know, being one of the contenders, ended up being a contender for the Stanley Cup. Who do you see as a surprise this year? As a as a surprise, um, you know, I, this is it's sort of funny because they've gone so much under the radar that my surprise team for this year uh, is the San Jose Sharks. Um, they didn't make any – huge movements in the off season. They added some subtle pieces, uh, a solid defenseman from Pittsburgh that they added, and but they changed their coach. And I think they had had the same coach in Todd McClellan for a really long time, and they had a ton of success under him. But as you know in sports, sometimes the message eventually just gets stale if you've got the same coach and the same players and you don't win a Stanley Cup, or even sometimes you do win a Stanley Cup, and the message still gets stale. And I think that's what happened last year in San Jose. There were a lot of untimely injuries for that team as well. And I think they're ready for a for a big bounce back here. They also had bad goaltending last year. And, you know, I feel like um, sometimes I, I'm ringing the same bell over and over by talking about how important goaltending is. But, you know, the, the goaltenders have the biggest statistical impact. Uh, it's hard to predict sometimes on who will be good and who won't. But there's no question that the goaltender can make the biggest impact on your team. And they traded for a goalie. Um, from, from the Los Angeles Kings named Martin Jones, who had been Jonathan Quick's backup. And I have really high hopes for this guy. Uh, he had great numbers in a small sample size playing for the Kings. He had great uh, American Hockey League numbers in, in the minor leagues. He's six foot four, and he's still pretty young. And I think that if the team starts to, to buy into a new coach and maybe a new leadership there in the locker room, they named a new captain, to go along with a couple of their nice, solid additions. Uh, uh, they also added a, a really good two-way forward who's a veteran who's been around it, and Joel Ward, who's a really nice player, too. So, yeah, you know, they went out and they made yeah. – Yeah, right, you would be familiar with him, and you know that he's known for his, his playoff play and some clutch goals and also just being a solid all-around player. So, you know, they made some nice additions, and, and I'm thinking that uh, they might come to surprise people who had declared them dead after last year. Now, speaking – Let's talk about the Caps because that's where I'm based right now. Is this it for them? This, I mean, are they? I'm beginning to wonder. If, if after what happens with baseball season, if uh, the Washington Nationals caught what the Caps have had, whatever disease <laughs> they have, and I'm wondering, 
will the Caps do anything this year, or they're just going to have the same pattern that they've had since I started watch, watching them in the late seventies? Well, you know, uh, you mentioned just their history, and it's kind of amazing all the things that have gone wrong. Uh, when they've gotten to playoff time. I mean, one year they were clearly the runaway best team in the league, and then they ran into a really hot Montreal goaltender, Yaroslav Halak at the time, who shut them down and ended up winning, I think, in the, in the seventh game. They've had say, everything that could go wrong has possibly gone wrong for the Capitals in the playoffs. But uh, I, a lot of people are predicting them to be a team uh, that goes to the Stanley Cup this year and finally gets it done. And they made a big trade in the offseason to get T.J. Oshie, who – um, you know, right. uh, you mentioned Olympic Olympic hockey fans might remember for his famous shootout game against Russia. Uh, he's not only really good in the shootout, but a really good all-around player. And then they signed a guy that's known as Mr. Game 7, uh, Justin Williams from the Los Angeles Kings, because he's had so many big moments in the playoffs with L.A. that he earned that nickname. So they went out and, and got a guy who might be able to help them when it comes to playoff time and then a really talented forward, likely who will play uh, on the other side of Alex Ovechkin. But, you know, it's really now or never for the Washington Capitals because um, you know, those guys are not getting any younger who are their star players. Nicholas Backstrom and Alex Ovechkin, the, guy they've, the guys they've leaned on for such a long time, they're starting to get into their 30s now. And it's been shown – Statistically and, you know, anecdotally, you could probably say it too, that once those star players get past 30, it's pretty hard to keep carrying your team to an elite level. So it's almost now or never for uh, the Capitals. What is the one thing they have to do at midseason, a trade they would have to make just to get them over? Well, it's hard to, you know, the thing about hockey, Matthew, is that you can make trades in midseason, but like, you know, like you were saying, and everyone knows a hot, a hot goalie changes everything in the – in the Stanley Cup run. It doesn't matter who you have. Oh, it, it, it definitely does. And if you remember when Boston won the Stanley Cup, that Tim Thomas was just unbelievable, and, and nobody could get a puck by him. And the same thing has happened in the past. Uh, Corey Crawford for Chicago might be a little bit of the exception, people would say, but if you look at his numbers in the playoffs when they won the Cup, he's had to be very good. And, and Jonathan Quick is a guy that's known – uh, for the Kings who can step it up when it comes to the playoff time. And that's one thing that the Capitals really have going for them is that their goaltender, Braden Holtby, was one of the best in the NHL last year, played a ton of games, was one of uh, only a handful of goalies to play over 70 games, and still had one of the highest save percentages in the NHL. And I think that that's one of the reasons the Capitals are, are going for it, not just because of their guys that are aging a little bit, but they also have a high level of belief in their goaltender. Um, but to your question about what they might need to add, I think we'll have to wait and see. I mean, because right now I think they have a really right. solid roster. Um, the one thing that they did lose was a power play scoring defenseman, Mike Green, who had been there for a really, really long time. Well, he been, and uh, he, Green had been there forever. Oh, yeah. And he signed uh, with Detroit in the off season, And I think that his defensive issues became too much uh, for their coach, Barry Trotz, who's always been known as more of a defensive coach. So they decided to let him go. But it does leave a hole uh, for a power play score there um, to play along with Ovechkin on the power play. Someone's got to, you know, set him up for those big slap shots. So uh, if they're going to add anything, they'll probably look for a team that's, you know, not competing or had disappointing results to try and get more of a, uh, a good passer off the blue line somewhere. But I'm expecting this to be a, a very strong Capitals team to start with. 
Yeah, I agree with you on that, you know. But I agree each year until I see what happens. You know, I always have hope. I've had hope since 79 with this team, so we shall <laughs> see. But I want to, you know, one study I haven't seen yet, because you mentioned the thing about their goalie playing over 70 games. And I'm equating this to a 300-plus carry running back in the NFL. Is it good to have a goalie that's playing 70 more games in the regular season? Is there a study out there that shows that this is, you know, that basically you should save him until the playoffs and not not use him as much? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, It's really highly debated over the last few years of how much to use goalies because the statistical evidence points to goaltenders when they play two days in a row that they are not as good the second day, which I I think goes just to common sense, right? I mean, if you play the day before – you're going to be more fatigued, and it's going to be more difficult to uh, put together a good performance. However, there are, like almost any other rule, there are exceptions. I mean, just for example, um, you know, you might say if a running back has so many touches, then the next year he often does badly. But if that running back is Ladanian Tomlinson or something, it can be different. And that's what they've tended to find in the NHL, that, you know, your goaltenders like Carey Price, although he doesn't play, I don't think he played over 70 games, uh, and I know Henrik Lundqvist was hurt, but in the past, Henrik Lundqvist for the Rangers played 70 games every single year, and he never saw any kind of dip. And I, and I think the same goes for Braden Holtby. So, you know, when it comes to analyzing the stats, you always have to recognize that there are going to be exceptions to the rule, and the teams that can run out Braden Holtby seven out of every eight, eight games, I mean, you have a distinct advantage because naturally um, your backup goaltenders aren't going to be as good. So if you have one of those guys who can do it, one of those exceptions to the rule, I, I think you're really in good there. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And it's, you know, it's just a, a fascinating thing with goal because I've had this debate with myself, and I've brought it up on some shows. I've never brought it up with you. I'm, like, I'm curious. Now, Everyone will tell you, you know, when you look at most publications or you listen to something like ESPN, they'll say that an NFL quarterback, that's the hardest job in sports as far as team sports. And I always believe it's it's a goalie in the NHL. I think that goalies would – yeah, I think goalies would have a pretty strong argument for that. Um, you know, with it, it's kind of hard to compare because I, I think I might agree that uh, either catcher or quarterback. You know, if you're if you have a catcher in baseball that can play 120 games and, and hit and call pitches and go through the punishment that it takes, so that's a pretty hard gig. But quarterback, I mean, if you look at the NFL, there are just so few that are even good. You've got your Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady and, you know, a few others like Drew Brees, and then the next – and then every other team is scrambling to try and find those guys. I think it speaks to just how tough it is. But with goaltender, the one thing that is, is the hardest on goalies uh, mentally is that they just deal with so much luck, whether it's good luck or bad luck, and they are so dependent on their teams. So you can be a right. really talented goalie. I mean, you can ha- you have all the tools – you can be six foot five. You can be athletic. You can be uh, quick. You can read the puck well. And then pucks sometimes just bounce off players' butts and go in the goal. And like sometimes, it's like, what are oh, you yeah. gonna do? A puck, you know, a puck just went off somebody. It's not really your fault. But when you look at the numbers at the end of the season, you go, hey, that guy had a down year. But maybe because we're still dealing with a sample size that's not 
humongous or enough to really decide on based on one season. So you could be a great goalie and play one season and have some bad luck and then never get a chance again. And I, I think that's really, really hard there. And then, I mean, you know, if your defense doesn't play well and gives up easy scoring chances, there's only so much that one man can do back there. And again, it's the same thing where, um, you know, I know goalies who played for the Buffalo Sabres who finished 30th place two years in a row they didn't exactly perform that great over the last few years. Well, big surprise because they had the worst team in the league, right? And so those goalies might actually be really talented, and if they were playing for, you know, a great team, then they would step up. So I think it's it's, it's different in that way than almost every other sport um, and every other position, and that's what makes it unique, and that's what also makes it really, really challenging. Yeah, so, you know, it is something. Before we get to – your prediction, and it's hard to be, unlike the other sports, it's hard to say who's going to be the Stanley Cup champions, who's going to be in the finals. It's just, for me, for hockey, it's just hard just because of the hot goalie and all the other factors. But before we get to that, I want you to talk about, because I have not seen him play yet, but is Connor McDavid that good? Is he the, <laughs> is he the new Gretzky, Crosby? I mean, is he that good? I, I think the answer is uh, both yes and no at the same time. Now, I have seen Connor McDavid uh, a number of times. He, his junior team actually played close to where I live, uh, only about two hours away. So I saw him play a few times. And in, in terms of his talent level, he is absolutely on the level of Sidney Crosby and Wayne Gretzky. I, I mean, he is the fastest player I think I've ever seen. Uh, he is one of the smartest players I've ever I've ever seen, and he is a guy that plays at so much of a next level. I mean, maybe your best comparison is um, maybe he doesn't play exactly like this guy, but in terms of just the speed and how intimidating it is to opponents, it's like Alex Ovechkin, where when he is coming with the puck, he is at the type of speed that most players can't even skate at when they don't have the puck. And he is such an intelligent player. He's, he's got amazing vision. He's a tremendous passer, and he can score. And he's a very competitive kid as well. But the, the thing is that with hockey just in 2015, it's not like it was when Wayne Gretzky was like Connor McDavid. It's, uh, right. it's changed a little bit. The, the competition is much more difficult than it used to be. There are far fewer power plays and opportunities to score uh, 100 points or 200 points as Wayne Gretzky did. So I wouldn't expect that Connor McDavid is going to score uh, any sort of record-breaking numbers, but as we go forward and he grows, he's still a little bit of a scrawny kid at the moment, but as he grows, especially look for him in his second to third year to become, if not the best player in the league, one of the top five players in the league. But I fully expect McDavid, after three years when he starts to get into his prime, to be the best player in the NHL. I'm gonna hold you to that. I'm gonna look at I'm gonna look at Edmondson very carefully this year. I got to see this kid play. So let's get to who you're picking potentially to get into the Stanley Cup Finals. Yeah, the uh, I think the obvious pick in the Eastern Conference, and I wouldn't go against it, is the Tampa Bay Lightning. I mean, they are so stacked from top to bottom, and they're just they just keep getting better uh, as they've had this amazing prospect system that they've moved players up. Um, year after year, it seems that they have some new great prospect, and they've got another one who's going to play a lot more this year, Jonathan Druin, who they pat, uh, picked third overall 
um, just a couple of years ago, and he's sort of coming into his prime. They've got Steven Stamkos, who has scored 60 goals before, their top forward. They have Victor Hedman, who is a likely uh, or one of the top most picked for the Norris Trophy for the best defenseman in the NHL. And then they don't just have one solid goalie, they have two solid goalies. So their starter won't have to play those 70 games that we were talking about. They also have a prospect goalie who's uh, really highly thought of as going to be the backup this year. His name's Andre Vasilevsky, maybe a guy, a guy to watch. Um, he could even steal the starting job if he plays really, really well. Uh, they were the best team in the NHL, in my opinion, uh, last year in the regular season, and uh, the Chicago Blackhawks beat them out. Um, in part because the Blackhawks had lost Patrick Kane for a, a long stretch of time and that had hurt them in the standings. But um, I thought that Tampa Bay had a great chance last year to win it, and they're the easy pick in the East this year. In the West, it's a little more complicated because the Chicago Blackhawks made some moves this season, uh, this offseason, to deal with their salary cap issues, and a lot of people think they might not be as strong as they were in the past. I tend to think that. They will be a very strong team, but a lot of people are pointing to the Anaheim Ducks who were in the Western Conference final game seven last year, that it might be their year to just take that one extra step. And, you know, I, I don't know that I would go against that. But the it. West, yeah. Yeah. The, the West is, the West is really unpredictable right now. I mean, I, I don't, I don't mean to cop out. I, I think that that would probably be my pick Tampa Bay against uh, Anaheim, but uh, there are a lot of teams in the Western Conference that are stacked that you could see uh, really stepping up to the plate there. That's something. And it, well, I'm going to have you back on mid-season, and we'll just go over this and see what happens with the season. But, Matthew, I just want to thank you, as always, for coming on here and giving great advice, and you're one of the experts out there on the NHL. And if anyone wants to reach you, do uh, you have a website and anything else that people can get a hold of yet? Yeah, absolutely. If you want to check out the book or uh, a lot of our other work, HockeyPerspectives.com is the best place to do it. And I also write uh, a weekly stats-based column for ESPN Insider as well. So you can uh, check that out and follow me on Twitter at uh, MatthewWGR. And I, and I just want to say I always appreciate your uh, your questions. I, I think uh, you know you, you ask some really great questions that, that, that make me think over here too. So I always appreciate coming on with you. Well, I appreciate that because uh, you know I um, you know I just I love hockey. You can't, and I have to say, and I've never asked you this, but I always tell folks hockey is a great game to watch, but you have to look at it in person. I'm going yeah. to get the NHL oh. package, but it's so hard to look at it on television. It's just hard. You have to I see it in person to really appreciate it. Yeah, I think if you're one of the people that grew up with it from, like, a really young age, like me, I, I grew up in and still live in the Buffalo area, so you're talking about cold weather, ice hockey, those sort of things, that it's not as hard to watch on TV. But if you're semi-new to it and trying to give it a try, right. then go just go find a game. I mean, it doesn't even have to be an NHL game. I mean, it could be a college game. It could be, a, you know, a, a minor league game. Uh, no longer are the days of – you know, these minor league games turning into big giant brawls and things like that. That just doesn't really happen anymore. <laughs> I see, but, I miss that. But, I mean, <laughs> yes, I know, I know. But, you know, I found myself branching out to junior leagues and, and college and things like that. And, you know, some people might sort of roll their eyes like, oh, I just, you know, I want to see the best. But then you realize that, 
you know, sometimes when mistakes are made in hockey, that that makes for the most exciting plays. You don't get a breakaway with right. everyone doing their job. So, um, you know, I, I would suggest it to anybody that even if you're not a big fan uh, or you don't think you are, just go enjoy the atmosphere because it's pretty fun. It definitely is. And, Matthew, again, I just want to thank you for being on. We're going to have you on again at midseason. Just thanks so much, and you take care. All right. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. All right. Anytime. And, again, that's Matthew Collier. He's uh, one of the editors of the book, The Hockey Perspectives, 2015-2016, and they've been going on for six years now. Great information. And if you're a novice and you just don't know, and I say this every time I have morning, but if you're a novice, don't know anything about hockey, you want to learn something, I would pick up the book. I would read some of his columns. And like I said, go to – if you can't get to a pro game because it's exorbitant to see a game and it's hard to look at it, like I said, on television. I try, but it's just hard. I want to get the package and look at it on my computer, on my tablet, but it's, it's just hard. You have to see it in person really appreciate the beauty of the game and what's going on and how how athletic the guys are skating like you know skating that hard and doing what they do in that short amount of time that they're on the on the rink and it's just amazing but anyway and that's my spiel for the NHL and hockey in general but I hope you enjoyed that interview and we're going to get to more music here because come on we're getting ready to get out of here in a minute so I'm going to do go back to the Late 20s, and we're going to do Louis Armstrong. And this is kicking the gong around. And he's actually talking about drugs on this. So let's hear this on the Root and Root show.
rooster, which is the hen. It's hard to tell them apart today. And say, Sid is busy learning to shave. Brother jumps out his family way. It's hard to tell them apart today. Hey, hey. Girls were girls and boys were boys when I was a top. Now we don't know who is who or even what's what. Nickers and trousers, baggy and white. Nobody knows who's walking inside. Those masculine women and feminine men. You are 
are really something else It would be a crazy deal If I had you by myself To be shooting booty You are everything I need Please say you feel the same And baby give your love to me That's right. That was a uh, Joe uh, Hunter, whose birthday also is ten ten, along with Thelonious Monk, and that was Shooty Booty. <laughs> and before that, we did uh, the Savoy Havana Band, and that was Masculine Women, Feminine Men, and that was from the early thirties. And before that, we did Louis Armstrong and Kicking the Gong Around Again, and that it's a code word for. Cocaine back then. It's, it's, you got to look it. You know, look it up, and you'll see. You know, it kind of sounds innocent enough. Although he uses the word picking in there, which is a story in itself. But that's um, Louis Armstrong. It, I mean, you have to. Re- and I've done a number of shows on Louis Armstrong. Just without Louis Armstrong, I, I always say this about him: music in this country would be totally different. And so, when you listen to his early stuff. Put yourself in the mind of you're hearing it for the first time as far as you're in that era, and you can understand what I mean when I say that music would be different without Louis Armstrong. He was the innovator, just amazing. Every He did everything. And you can argue, too, that he was the innovator also of rap, and that's a story in itself. But anyway, we, you know, and I might do a show sometimes comparing Louis Armstrong's chops to what he was doing to current rappers give you an idea of what I'm talking about. But I hope you enjoyed this edition of the Root and Root Show. And I want to thank Manfred uh, Berg calling all the way from Germany to talk about his excellent book, Popular Justice, The History of Lynching in America. And also I want to thank my friend Matthew Collier for being on again with the Hockey Prospectus and giving us a preview of the 2015-2016 season. And I just hope you, you know, just enjoy the show. And I, thank, I want to thank all the folks who are following us on Twitter at hashtag Unifix, U-N-I-F as in Frank, I-C-S as in Sam. On Facebook, Greg, G-R-E-G, last name Rashid, R-A-S-H-E-E-D. Also, people who send in comments and potential topic uh, topics I can use on the show, they go to blogtalkradio.com and look for the message um, area of Root and Root Show. You look for that and you'll see it there. You'll see where you can leave your messages. And I just want to thank everyone and the growing list of uh, folks that are supporting this show. And if you want to do some advertising on this show and become a, you know, a supporter, just go to those places I mentioned. But this is Greg Rashid again. And I want to say go in love and go in peace. And, you know, you may not agree with everything that was said at the Justice for All March uh, that happened, happened today. You're hearing this last week, but for you know, but there was a lot. One thing I love, I was there for a brief time enough to see that there was a lot of unity out there, and a lot of folks getting together, enjoying themselves, and that's very important. You can ignore the message on the podium, the messages on the podium, but to see the fellowship of all folks, all races, all you know, men and women out there, children. It's just really great. So that's you know that's what I came away with being out there. But anyway, this is Greg Rasheed. Go in love and go in peace. We'll see you next time on the Root and Root Show. Just give someone a smile, give them a hug, and 
just help someone along the way. So we'll see you next time on the Root and Root Show.